It's a bit of a tech elite head fake, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised. After years talking about the digital divide and how rich kids have an unfair advantage with access to computers and broadband, well, it turns out the hot trend among Silicon Valley elites is shielding kids from the very technology they're selling to the rest of the world. Elite schools focus kids on playing with blocks and interacting with each other. Parents are looking for promises from nannies not to use digital devices around the kids. And at the same time, Apple this week announcing more screens. The MacBook Air is thinner and lighter. The iPad Pro packs more screen and computing power into a smaller device. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Ford of CNBC at the NASDAQ market site in New York's Times Square. Weighing in on the question of what to do about kids and screens, I have Anya Kamenetz, lead education blogger at NPR, and she's also the author of The Art of Screen Time, how your family can balance digital media and real life. Joining us shortly from London will be Catherine Omarad, author of Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life. Also joining shortly, Richard Freed, child and adolescent psychologist and author of Wired Child, Reclaiming Childhood in a Digital Age. Great group. Also, this week on the podcast, Panera CEO Blaine Hurst. Catch our conversation about how he went from techie and restaurateur to leading one of the most successful tech transformations in food. So. Uh, first, Anya, this kind of came to the fore this week because the New York Times did a piece, long after your book, by the way, about this issue around kids and screens. I'm a parent. I've got a 7-year-old and a 10-year-old, so it's something that I've thought a lot about and wrestle with all the time. Uh, is our culture doing the right thing around kids and screens? And if not, I, su I suspect not, what are we mainly getting wrong? So it's obviously really catchy to talk about this stuff and put on the moral panic narrative. And yeah. we heard this about video games. We heard it in early generations about comic books, even the telegraph, people were saying would destroy kids' minds. So in some ways, this is nothing new. I think what's catching parents off guard and making us think, oh, we should be making different choices is just how mobile technology it follows us around, right? It's everywhere. It's not just a certain day, a certain time. It's no longer that appointment viewing or that hearth that the family gathers around. And so the way that it's separating us into our separate corners, I think, is something that is worth scrutinizing. One, one of the things that I look at is, do I understand what they're doing on the screens? Is it creative? And are they able to uh, create I guess, social dynamics around it. Are they talking to each other? Are they talking to their friends about it? Is what they're doing on the screen, would it be acceptable to sort of do that kind of thing in real life? That's a really highly emotionally intelligent way to look about it, John. You must have read my book. Um, <laughs> but uh, thinking about joint engagement, that's a key concept that the American Academy of Pediatrics wants to put forth. And that idea that you don't leave a kid alone with the screen, especially a very young kid. You do not park them on the screens. And even as they like get ever? older. Well, you know, nobody's perfect and we all need to, you know, get take a shower or cook dinner. But the ideal is that you're going to make that the basis of a positive interaction. You're going to steer them towards those positive choices. And even as they get older, they're playing games. They're watching things by themselves. Think of that soccer dad or that soccer mom. You're interested. You're engaged. You're curious and not just condemning. And that's how we steer our kids to make better choices and, frankly, make more balanced choices ourselves. What about the idea of limits? How much of the issue around screens is the idea we can put them in front of screens for an extended period of time. Uh, they're not necessarily able to think critically about what's happening. And then they sort of get addicted. Like sometimes you see the reactions from kids when you take the screen away 
it's like you just severed a limb. They, they just completely melt down. What I feel like, I remember playing video games as a kid, and for me, the abrupt cutoff of stop the game now, if I'm in the middle of a board, and you know, I'm just about to beat that board on Super Mario, just let me finish the board first. So I always give the kids, okay, finish this board or in X amount of time, and my kids tend to do better with that. But still, that, that jarring reaction around the screen can be, I think, scary for parents. Absolutely. There is brain science behind it, too, because screens are very stimulating, and they provide this passive, predictive, predictable stimulation, and that's what kids are really reacting to when you yank it away. And so it really is a good idea to scaffold it for them, to help them wind down, to give them a countdown, turn off the screens before bed, because mm. screens, screens are not relaxing. They should not be part of the bedtime routine. And so all of these ways are, are ways we can get smarter around screens. But, you know, we have to be good role models. If you have the screen at mealtime, if you have it before bed, right. first thing in the morning, on the nightstand, it's going to be very hard for a kid to say, well, as you do as he says, not as he does. What about some of these movements out there? One of them is called wait till eight. Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, don't get a, a smartphone for your kid until they're in the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not inclined to hold to that. My kids don't have smartphones at this stage, but I feel like I don't want to give them a, a dumb phone, like a flip phone. I want to give them a smartphone so that I can have location turned on and sort of understand what they are, but I want to lock down maybe every single app except for phone calling. Right, right. Well, it's <laughs> Until a fine it's line that parents are walking, and I think it really is something that has to be done on a community-wide basis because you do get into these social issues where the screen is the conduit to all of their peers and to some really important stuff, identity formation, you know, Kids don't hang out at the mall anymore. They don't have transportation. Neighborhoods aren't as safe sometimes. And so they are, they're home and they're on their phones. And so it's really important. When I speak at schools, I always encourage the parents to talk to each other. And that's what that Wait Until Eighth campaign is. It really mm -hmm. is saying, don't let your kid tell you I'm the last one without a phone. Let's make sure that we make a decision together and come to an understanding because, you know, your kid's going to be connecting to other kids. It might be somebody else's kid who is having a problem, who's texting your kid in the middle of the night. And you need to have those open lines of communication. It really does take a village. On the one hand, I like the community approach of kind of wait till it. On the other hand, I kind of find it disturbing that so many parents seem to feel the need for everybody else to be doing it in order mm. for them to set boundaries. It's kind of like, why do you need me to sign this petition with you in order to enforce rules? Come up with your rules in your household, mm -hmm. set them and stick to them. Like we tell kids not to give in to peer pressure, but at the same time, I feel like parents are kind of doing it. Like, well, all the other parents are X, Y, Z. You know, it's, it's really a difficulty today. And I have to say, parenting choices are under a lot of scrutiny. There's mm. high anxiety. There's a lot of stakes if you get it wrong. Even something like these stories in the New York Times. I mean, who are they really judging and shaming, and do all of us feel bad if we don't have a nanny that we can tell not to put on the phone, right? <laughs> what if grandma's watching the kids? What if they're in a home-based daycare and you can't put down that law? Are you a bad parent? You know, and I think right. that's what parents are really struggling with. Indeed. And uh, for more on this, we want to bring in Catherine Ormerod, social media influencer, editor uh, at Work, 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 and author of the book, Why Social Media is Ruining Your Life. Also with us, Dr. Richard Fried, child and adolescent psychologist and author of Wired Child, Reclaiming Childhood in a Digital Age. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Richard, what's different about this era in media and, and worrying about what's going to kind of destroy our children. I mean, I, I remember reading about how parents were worried about comic books and how the kids were spending all their time reading those. That seems quaint in light of what's going on now. I think as Anya was saying, I think that we're, we as parents are looking for a balance, but I'm talking with parents and teachers across the nation, and we are very much struggling with the fact that parents uh, 
struggle to find that balance. What we're finding is these devices are, uh, and these products, social media, video games, are pulling kids away. And so much of that has to do with the fact that psychologists and brain scientists are now building social media products, are building video games in very powerful ways, to, to, uh, brain scientists to, to hook kids using what's called persuasive design. And that's why uh, myself and Dr. Megan Owens, and uh, with, in a letter organized by the Children's Screen Time Action Network, we have written a, a, this letter to the APA asking that psychologists not be involved in persuasive design, not be involved mm. in these digital tricks, hooking kids for what is now six hours and 40 minutes a day for the, the, the typical uh, team, which is far too much. That's a, that's a lot of time. I, I wonder, to what degree should parents be thinking about the whole picture of what kids are doing? I mean, I know in my family, my wife played piano growing up. I played piano growing up. We decided that our kids are going to play piano. And they have a certain amount of time where they practice. And I feel like that idea of doing something with your fingers and having to listen, are you getting it right? The frustration of having to work through it, that's doing something for them that I feel is important. It's going to help them later. And yeah, they've got screen time, that's doing something else for them. But how much do we need to be thinking in those terms about the sorts of experiences that we're arranging for them and what it's training their brains to do? Uh, that's a really good question. What, what parents are finding and why these screens are video games and social media are so concerning is because at six hours and 40 minutes for the typical kid, it, it displaces the, the activities that science says our kids need. And that is, um, even for teens, they need to be interacting and close with their family. And today, kids, if you look over at the, in the car next to you, you're going to see a parent and a teen together. That teen is not talking with a parent. That teen is on a phone. So it's so much of that displacement. It's also displacing kids' focus on school. It's taking away their focus at home. And so many kids are sitting there flipping through Instagram, flipping uh, or, or playing Fortnite in the back of the classroom. And it's pulling them away from an academic focus that's also very important. Catherine, it's, it's not just about kids, but tell me what, your, uh, what you've been looking into as far as social media's impact on our lives and our interactions with people and uh, even, even our emotions and how we feel about real life because of what we're seeing happening on the screen. Definitely. I mean, a lot of the conversation that we've had here obviously is focused on children, but we could say the same thing for a lot of adults as well. Um, when it comes to the brain hacking and the way these sites have been architecturally constructed to suck your eyeballs in for ever longer hours, minutes, days, you know, I think that, you know, that those issues are really universal. And, um, you know, as you guys have said, that, you know, you have to lead by example and quite often, you know, people are driving on their mobile phones and looking at social media, let alone the kids in the back <laughs> looking at it, you know. It's, it's something that I think is an issue for the entire family. Um, and obviously, the content that is being consumed on these different medias, it, it's not something that we are necessarily abreast of yet in terms of culturally coming to terms with the quality of it, the, the way it's changing our psyches, the way it's changing our expectations. And I think when you look at the kind of perfection element of the way a lot of the tricky sides of life have kind of been edited out of the picture, mm -hmm. that can create very strange standards and benchmarks for young people. So, Catherine, what should we do? Um, not, not just kids, but also those who are supposed to be setting examples for them. Well, how do we try to establish this healthy balance? Are there 
benchmarks? Are there you know, periods of time where you, you put the devices aside? What have you found? So I think that there are two elements. Firstly, your own use, the way you're using um, social media and your phone is something you have to be really mindful and aware of. And I think with the new update as well on the iPhone, there's a, an ability to really read how much time you're spending on these platforms, how much time you're spending on different apps on a daily basis. And I think having a consciousness of where you're at is probably the first stage because it's very easy to slip into denial, you know, oh, I'm just <laughs> looking at it for work or, you know, oh, I just had to check this because I needed, or I needed my phone in my bedroom because it's my alarm clock. You know, that's a, that's a very, very common refrain. We had alarm clocks before we had smartphones, <laughs> so you, you don't need your phone in the bedroom. <laughs> um, but, you know, we find these, we find these kind of excuses because we're all so hooked. Um, so the first side is, yes, the use. It has to be really important. But also, I think it's the way you perceive what you consume that is as important. As long as we're, you know, educating our children and allowing them to understand that it's as much of a fiction as, you know, a, a novel or a, f a film, a feature film, mm. I think that can have a really big impact on the way that you know, these benchmarks and standards of where people should be attaining and their expectations of what their life is going to be like, it can have a really big impact on that. So, right. you know, I think that education and conversation needs to be happening as a family across the board. So you're not just watching the Joneses with their new car and their fabulous holiday and feeling those feelings of FOMO and guilt and, <laughs> you know, envy and jealousy. Right. I mean, that, that's something that a lot of adults are feeling, but, you know, we need to communicate this to our yeah. As that's, much what as that's what you're talking about. Yeah, like, but, yeah absolutely. you know, uh, it is. And, you and know, I, yeah, we, we have to have conversations around this. You know? we, we do. And Anya, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm trending at around six and a half hours a week on the phone. I think that's what Apple's telling me. I didn't know that before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's low, I'm, actually. Is it low? I think so. Well, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, because I, yeah, I do use low. it as my alarm clock because, yeah. frankly, I have, I set two alarms every morning, like one at the time I want to wake up and then one two minutes later in case I didn't wake up at that time. It's my calendar for work appointments. I've got my email on it yeah. on down the line. My wife and I are constantly texting throughout the day. Yeah. Um, so the, the limits are difficult. When you go into schools, as you do, talking about your book, interacting with kids. What, what are the main issues that you hear? Are, are, are kids saying that they want time away from their devices? Do they understand they are addicted? Are they, are they pointing to their parents as part of the problem or part of the solution? All of the above. Kids mm. do feel that their parents are quite preoccupied and they are watching us. You know, it's very important that we make that time when we have our phones, make it something we're engaging them. I think it's a way to create accountability when you pick up your phone around your kid. You should tell them why you're doing it, tell them mm. what the purpose is. We can hold each other accountable and our homes can be refuges from the world where we hold up to higher values and that includes with technology. Secondly, yes, I do hear from kids who would like to get off of social media you know, the time that you're becoming a teenager is when you are so aware of status, of peers, of wanting to be like everyone else. And 
particularly young girls, not to stereotype, but you see that young girls have the same kinds of issues with social media and compulsive use that boys tend to have with video games. Hmm. Because every time they log on, you know, it could be negative things, it could be cyberbullying, it could be some image of some unattainable perfection model that they want to be like. And you're just forming your identity. You need a break from it. And, and in the old days, if you had drama at school, you could go home, mom, you know, pours you a glass of milk, makes some cookies, and it's all gone. Now those mean girls, they follow you home. They're right. there all day. And so it really is uh, important, I think, for parents to try to know what's going on and keep an ear out and keep the lines of dialogue open. Richard, what do we do about that? Because as a parent, again, of a 7-year-old and a 10-year-old, that's maybe the thing I worry about the most. So I'm trying to figure out, is there a healthy approach to social media on a smartphone? Like, eventually, they're going to leave the house. I'm actually kind of looking forward to that as long as they're ready. And so I need to prepare them for it. But at the same time, during high school, at some point, you got to disconnect. So what is the healthy way to manage that for an adolescent who you want to be able to interact face-to-face -face in healthy ways, but you don't want to get sucked into these vortexes of bullying or, or negative uh, self-image? I, I think the answer so much, and we've been talking about that, is, is the adults that are responsible in, in kids' lives, parents, teachers, healthcare providers, stepping up uh, to, to help kids. Uh, parents at home, I suggest considering uh, what I recommend, and that's parent like a tech exec. We see Steve Jobs, we see Bill and Melinda Gates pushing back the age when kids get uh, devices like smartphones. And uh, I do like uh, wait in, in, until eight. I, I think that there needs to be a uh, programs like that where there's a, a grassroots, and it's happening across the nation, a grassroots effort where parents say, enough is enough. Well, great. Um, I like this, Richard, because I, I, I want you to test my planned approach here. I've been thinking about it for more than a year, just in preparation for when this happens. I, I, I agree with wait until eighth up to a point. I want my kid to have a, a smartphone as soon as he needs a phone to call, but I want to use the settings to lock down the ability to download any apps or even use any apps except for the phone app. He can call me. I don't want him texting anybody. I don't want him on Facebook or any social media. And then as we start to work through that, maybe on the desktop where I'm able to more easily monitor it, he proves that he's responsible at a certain level. Then I'll turn it on on the phone and we'll sort of We'll, we'll see when he's ready. What do you think of that approach? I, I, I like that. I think wait until eight is, is not preventing your kid from getting a, a phone. It's from getting your kid a fully connected smartphone where it's nearly impossible to say, keep them off of social media, keep them off of playing Fortnite in, in the back of a classroom. <laughs> it's really, um, if, if you do need to get uh, your kid a phone to, to um, contact them after soccer practice, uh, I, I think that that's great. I'm, I'm an old man now, because whenever we talk about this, my wife and I, I'm like, back in my day, I rode the train from Northwest Washington, D.C., all the way to Southwest in the seventh grade, and we didn't have smartphones. My parents had no idea where I was. I needed a quarter if I wanted to call somebody, and even then, you know, they might not be by the phone. I had to solve my own problems. R Richard, to what degree uh, are we telling ourselves the truth around how connected even our kids need to be? Are, are we being too helicopter-ish in our parenting, thinking that we've got to know where they are at every moment? I, I think so much about what we need to understand is, is parents sometimes feel com compelled to get their kid a smartphone with the belief that kids need to be connecting with peers. But 
I, I think we really need to, what, what's, what's happening is kids are living their lives connected with peers in back rooms with, with their doors shut. Um, so much of what's happened for, for me in my clinical practice is I now have fourth and fifth grade, kind of the high functioning, especially girls who are feeling they need uh, to be in constant contact with their peers because their peers are depressed, because their peers in fourth and fifth grade are cutting or suicidal. Mm. So they're fielding calls at 11 and 12 o'clock at night um, trying to take care of their peers. And what happens to them? They cut and become depressed uh, as well. Really the research, if we really look to that, it's so much about even preteens and teens need a strong connection with family. And right now those phones are uh, displacing that. Yeah, Catherine, I, I, I worry about kids' ability to interact face-to-face. -face. And Catherine, I, I also think that uh, I, I'm a weird dad in this sense. I want my kids to have the experience of being a little bit of an outcast. Like, uh, I make sure that they don't have the most current gaming console. When I was a kid, it's we didn't have it because we couldn't afford it. Now, I just want them to know what it's like for another kid who uh, maybe is, is in less of a good financial situation, but they get the thing first, and they have to go over to their house to play it, right? So just so that they know what it's like not to always have the coolest thing and to have to feel confident in something else. I mean, to, to what degree is technology making us make those choices, both as adults and as kids, around where our limits are and what we can do without? I mean, a lot of psychologists have talked around this kind of idea of an empathy gap and a, a loss of ability to converse with each other, especially at younger and younger ages, and that's something to do with mediated technology for sure. Um, in terms of setting these boundaries, you know, it's a really tricky spot because we're in a huge generation gap here. Um, you know, the the... The, the rites of passage that this generation are going through are as different as the rites of passage, the difference from our generation as it was apparently during the war, you know. So it is a really tricky spot because as a parent, it, as you say, your reality of your childhood was so dramatically different from the reality of childhood in a mediated world. But equally, you know, like as Everyone said here, you know, that the, the same values that have always been to, you know, be a supportive parent continue on, whether there's the internet at your home or, or you're on a, you know, computer or whatever, you know, it's that, that, that ability to be open with your children and have that open dialogue and understand exactly what they're going through. Because mm. I think that's another thing with this generation gap, a lot of parents they're not au fait with a lot of this technology. They're not using it necessarily to the same extent. Maybe they've never been on Snapchat. They don't understand the nature of it. So, you know, really investing time in understanding these platforms is one of the most important things that you as a parent can do. Anya, um, I know we're all screwing up our kids in some way. <laughs> so it's sort of just you, you, you pick your poison. But uh, I, I sort of relish the idea of them being a little bit uncool in certain ways and learning to deal with it. Because I tell them, I, t I tell my boys, don't worry about people making fun of you. There are some people who will just be expert at finding something to make fun of, even if there's nothing. Oh, you look too perfect. They'll figure out something. Yeah. So you've just got to be okay with yourself. Well, and I just want to throw in that, you yeah. know, social media has more than one purpose and more than one use. And so what hmm. we do see actually is a great conversation going on right now in schools about bullying and kindness, about being upstanders, about how 
social media can be used to, pr to promote pro-social behavior. Look at the Parkland kids, the way that they masterfully use social media as a, as a political and civic engagement tool. That's mm. not an anomaly. We have a very digitally savvy generation, and I think we have to see the best in them. And we have to say, you know, if you have a little girl who's helping her friends with difficult stuff that's in over her head, you know, at least she's trying. And I think there's research that shows that, that young people with, with mental illness are using social media sometimes for health information right. to reach out and to get help and to open up that dialogue to release the stigma. And so if we want to see a better social media future for our kids, instead of just seeing the negatives that come out and the fear, we need to join together in lifting up what's good about it. All right. Well, that sounds like good advice. And Richard, I'm hoping you once again can ground us in principle here. Give us maybe three or four things or however many uh, you can pull out <laughs> of your book or your hat, things that parents should specifically do or at least be thinking about to um, make sure that our own efforts and our kids' responses are on the right track. I, it's really interesting, again, to look at, at how parent or, or how leading tech execs are parenting uh, their own kids. They're pushing back the age when kids get devices. I so think that's where? a, a where really good we... thing. Give, give us a couple you know, points. Uh, how long before um, they're in their own space with a laptop doing their homework, or how long before they get a smartphone with, uh, I don't know, a, a web browser that is relatively unrestricted? Or how much should we restrict it? Uh, how, how about those for a couple of ages? I, I think schools are in a better place to determine when uh, a child is, is going to be able to use uh, tech uh, productively, and then that's, that's going to need to be uh, monitored by uh, teachers and by parents. I think we're in a different circumstance when we had hand kids tablets, when we hand kids uh, smartphones, and they take them back to their room. Uh, and, and as far as uh, what age, uh, Melinda Gates is on record saying we got, we got our kids uh, smartphones at, at 14, and we think that that was too soon. Mm. Um, and I, that's, that sounds remarkably different than what parents are doing across America, because right now the average age is 10. But I think what we want to do is move towards that Gates model. Um, also, uh, tech execs Wouldn't are be the first time the Gates sure relate to the smartphone, but point taken, <laughs> well, uh, nonetheless. Sorry, I had to slip that in. That's <laughs> all right. And then, and then we really, we really want to keep devices out of, uh, out, out of, out of kids' rooms. That, that they are so compelling. Um, I, the, the World Health Organization just named video game addiction an actual diagnosis. Um, they've they've got to be monitored. They've got to be kept out of kids' rooms. And I really like parents um, advocating that, that kids are not on their phones at school. So many private schools are, are, are not allowing kids to be on their phones during the school day. And, and, public, and public education, I think, is suffering because kids are in, in, in their classrooms um, goofing around on their devices. I really think parents uh, need to advocate and ask that their kids in public school are provided the same opportunities that many private schools are providing their kids. Huh, interesting. And Anya, uh, Fortnite is a phenomenon. All the kids are talking about it. Second grade for my youngest, fifth grade for my older. I won't let them play it. Mm -hmm. In part because one of the rules that I have in our household is I don't want you inflicting semi-realistic violence mm -hmm. on another player who's actually 
alive. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of get that, but they also just kind of know that I'm a more restrictive dad than others. Mm -hmm. To what degree do we need to have, even if it's not that rule, mm -hmm. some kind of rules that we can express to our kids and some kind of gauge of when they're going to do certain things other than, well, Mikey's doing it, Sarah's doing it. So successful parents combine structure and warmth. That's a broad-based statement. And you need to know your kid best. The, the warning signs of problematic media use include irritability, a threshold effect where they seem to always want more, it's their only preferred activity, they're fighting and yelling when it's taken away, um, they're sneaking around and lying to use it, use it, get up early, stay up late, steal it from you, um, and they're losing interest in other activities. It's interfering with school, with, with fun. And so you watch for red flags, and I would argue on the other side, if your kid's enjoying what they do and it's, it's balanced with other activities, you don't need to always be have the frowning face. You know, you can enjoy time with your kids, play games alongside them, find out what they like about it. This is a, a portal into their universe and, and to get to know them. And I think that's something that parents need to see, not just the fear and the dark side, but also the opportunity. All right, good advice, bright advice. Anya Kamenetz, thanks so much for being with us. Also, Catherine Omarad uh, and Richard Freed. Coming up on the podcast, Blaine Hurst, CEO of Panera. Well, Blaine Hurst, uh, it, it was great to meet you over breakfast a bit ago, um, and we're getting ready to do this productivity at work conversation tomorrow, which I'm really excited about. Also with Lisa Sue of AMD, another techie who's become a CEO. But before we get into all that, at the end of this week, I am heading to Indiana to be on an alumni board for my alma mater, DePauw University, and uh, I... Having looked up your background, no, you're from Indiana. I am. I grew up in a little town of about 20,000 people called Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And most famous thing, it has the largest high school basketball gym in the world. Seats over 10,000 people with the extended seating. Very Indiana. Uh, very Indiana. And then I went to Indiana University. So, uh, Tell me how that Midwest upbringing kind of shaped your view of the world and of business. Because you've been not just a corporate guy, but also an entrepreneur. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I grew up in a relatively poor family. Um, my dad was an electrician working at a state mental institution. So back then, they, they certainly didn't make a lot of money. And uh, my grandparents pastored the church I grew up at. So I think when you combine Midwest plus the upbringing that I had with my grandfather who pastored a church that eventually became about, ran about a thousand people on Sunday morning. So one in five people in the town uh, <laughs> are, went to the church. Uh, I'm a, I'm a preacher's kid also. Oh, no so way. I, I am. So I know you couldn't mess up. You, you could not mess up. Everybody. Go to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. <laughs> Wednesday night. I could not miss Wednesday night service, right? So uh, I think that... It, it creates this solid foundation, and I so respect what happened. My, my grandmother was an unbelievable lady who uh, ended up, when she was retired, working in a Kentucky Fried Chicken truck stop hmm. and uh, just sharing herself with people who came through that truck stop. At her funeral, uh, there were more than 25 semi-tractors where the truckers had dropped their trailers simply to participate in Lovey May's funeral. So. That is a unique upbringing, truthfully. Mm. How did it prepare me? I don't know, but it made me who I am. <laughs> how, how did the tech, the technology bug get in you? I mean, early on, 
you decided to, to major in computer science, right? Well, I went to college to major in theater and music. <laughs> and my, you know, I realized you had to be really good and really lucky. And I figured, nah, I wasn't neither of those. So I was talking to my mom one day. And she said, you know, Blaine, I think that computer stuff could be something. You might actually enjoy that. So I took my computer, first computer science class and fell in love with it. What about it? I think the, what I, I find is that you know, people who major in theater and music are generally, I call it being addicted to applause. Mm. You like mm -hmm. the applause, right? Uh -huh. You like the applause. Right, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I think when you're working with computers, when you're programming, there's this sense of accomplishment when something works and it's cool and it's something somebody else hasn't done. So I think it, that part of it really appealed to me. And then I have you know, more of an engineering math type of brain, if you will. And I thought the combination of the creative with the engineering, that was just, I had so much fun. So where did the food come in? Because back in the day, there was no intersection really between technology and food. No, no, they it's were like, using the old cash registers, right? Yeah, there was, there was nothing. <laughs> nothing, uh, nothing. Even on the horizon, there was nothing. Nothing. Well, I... Um, I was with Ernst & Young and headed up one of their, they had two research and development centers, one in Boston and one that I founded in Dallas. And I was getting a lot of phone calls and I ended up talking to a guy that had just bought Boston chicken. Okay. And he convinced me to bring some of my technology skills to Boston chicken and this would have been in the early, early 90s. What kind of technology skills did Boston chicken need in the early 90s? Well, uh, the CEO, had this belief that you could create a technology platform that would run multiple restaurant brands. Mm. I mean, he was, he was way ahead of his time <laughs> and his thinking. And then most of the cash registers back then had either just membrane terminals, so you could, you could actually change out the membrane to change the positioning. Mm. But some people were beginning to think about using touchscreens for cash registers. So he, began, he believed that using technology, you could create a management platform for multiple brands. Now, it didn't work out exactly that way at the time, but that was 1990. Here we are, you know, uh, 30 years later, and that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah. So fast forward, now you're the CEO of Panera, and we're in an era where the, the smartphone especially has become that touchscreen ordering device. You have been uh, a, a pioneering sort of leadership force within the company toward not only, for people who aren't familiar, not only can you order from home and get delivery through the app, you can go into the store, sit at a table, get delivery to the table because of the table number, right? There's all kinds of ways right. you can get the food driven by technology. Um, wh why is that valuable, first of all? What does that get you that it doesn't get other restaurants, and then we'll get into how long it took to get here. Well, I think what's, if you, Panera is a fast casual concept. That means you walk in, historically, you'd have walked in, placed your order at the counter, and then we would have called you up to the counter to take your food, then you can take it back to your table or take it home. Mm. We added drive-throughs uh, in the mid-2000s to, again, drive a higher level of customer convenience. As we, we got it, 2010, when I joined Panera, it was clear that there was additional opportunity to, uh, we called it the desire to friction ratio. Our food was great, people love Panera, mm. 
Mm -hmm. But it was a pain at lunch to come in there, stand in line, and then wait for your food in what we call the proverbial mosh pit, as people <laughs> are hanging out saying, when's my food going to be ready? The belief was that technology could help break through some of that convenience and some of that friction of coming into Panera. So what numbers are you looking at that show you that opportunity gap? Is it you can see people are probably only coming in once a week when they could be coming in three times a week? What are you? Uh, we would see frequency decline. We also got customer feedback, but I, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty basic. Walk into a Panera, see everybody standing around going, when is my, you know, playing on their phone at the time, say, when is my food? And then there's this collision standing in front of the, the expo. That's what we call where that person is helping to expedite that food to the customer. Mm. Uh, but standing in front of the expo and you're going, man, there's got to be a better way. And even though you don't have absolute numbers, we had absolute belief that friction was getting in the way and, and making it harder to do business, if you will, with Panera. And so it was less about a specific number, but it was sort of that combination of the entrepreneurial insight combined with sort of general analytics, which led credence to that insight. So what do you do about it? Because th there was no model existing. Smartphones were brand new. PCs are at home. They can't help you out in that situation. Right. Well, I think we realized that the, there was a future on devices as well as on the desktops. In the very early days, we were principally, we focused initially on desktop for the first, from 2011 to 2013 as well as an iPad-based kiosk to simply help break up that line and make it easier to get your order placed and then sit down at your table or uh, take it to go or eat there, whatever. So I think the, um, the, 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 the handheld technology, if you will, did not come until a step later. Now, we had it in our, in our sites, but we focused first on the, on the desktop. Why? Because if you think about it, Panera does a bulk of its business, about 40% of our business, comes at lunchtime and people are coming from work. Mm. So the desktop is still a big component of our business, even today, because of if you think about how customers come to Panera. So people are at their desk deciding what they want for lunch, and then they're going to go pick it up. Yeah, they'll just order it online, come in and pick it up. A lot of people pick, use our rapid pickup uh -huh. and come in and sit down and eat it at, that, at the table. They just don't want to stand in the line. They don't want to wait for the food. They want it to be on the shelf when they walk in the, in the building. Yeah. Customers want convenience. You want convenience. I want convenience. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. All customers want convenience. <laughs> so you, what, what's your process for figuring this out? Because, yes, you can walk into a store, but at the time you're a technology guy. Right? So um, there have to be many other constituencies within Panera corporate, not to mention the stores themselves, franchise, who think they have a part of the answer to this program, to this problem. So even if you had the total answer, you have to make all those people feel like they sort were given of, part of the really. answer. No? Sort of, but not really. Okay. So we had a founder. He's, he's since not with us. Uh, he's still our founder, but he's not active in the day to day. Uh, Ron basically said, I believe this is important. And he allowed us to, and allowed me to form a high, what I would call a high performance team. We had people from different groups mm -hmm. and literally we just made decisions as we went. I didn't ask anybody, I'd check in with Ron, uh, he would give input, whatever, but we would literally just go. And 
part of it is probably unique to, to me because I'd had both restaurant and technology and been doing it for years and years. Uh, so I kind of had a sense of what mattered. The other thing is if it didn't work, we just discarded it and went to the next step. Hmm. I think big strategic technology projects fail when they begin to say, I've got all of these constituents, I've got to get them on board from day one. Interesting. I would argue you must solve the business problem first and then bring along constituents and they will help refine. But the number one, I, back in the 90s when I headed up that research and development function, or back in the 80s, we actually looked at failed IT projects. Mm -hmm. Number one reason for failure is they were named strategic projects from day one. <laughs> Because <laughs> everybody's got to be a part of the strategic project. Yeah. And that, that, the collision of everybody's viewpoint and then trying to sort through everybody's opinion caused most of these strategic projects to fail because they simply couldn't bring everybody together. Now, backstory on the technology and restaurants and entrepreneurial instincts converging. Tell me about barbecue. <laughs> Well, so some friends of mine from my former franchisees of Papa, of, of Papa John's mm -hmm. uh, said, hey, Where you got used to, to serve as? I was the first, the first CIO and then became the vice chairman and president. Uh, I left there in two, the end of 2000, beginning of 2001. Um, we launched the first nationwide online ordering site, period, in 1998. Nationwide online in 1998 using dial-up modems, if you can believe <laughs> it. But you could order through the internet which was an amazing feat back then for that many restaurants. Anyway, barbecue, some, some friends of mine, uh, uh, franchisees of Papa John's actually, said, hey, we found this great barbecue restaurant. So I bought in, bought in with a partner and got into barbecue. And what was a, it was a great learning opportunity. Didn't make a ton of money in it, truthfully, but talk about learning because for someone who had been in technology then on the edge of of restaurants and actually the president of a restaurant company but then to actually be the store opening manager and the store closing manager in a barbecue restaurant talk about learning you go <laughs> well that labor scheduling system well there's got to be a better way right so what is i did it yeah what did you learn i actually learned that being a restaurant manager is a much tougher job than most of us would think I think because you're dealing with people, you're dealing with schedules, you're trying to make sure your food is, is you're using the right amount of food, you're trying to make sure people aren't walking out the door with your food, you're trying to figure out how to work with customers. What I learned and have such an appreciation for our, our Panera general managers today is that that's a tough job no matter what. And the, if we, when we think about technology and completing the transformation of technology in restaurant companies, it's not just about getting customers to come in the door, mm -hmm. but it's literally about a holistic systemic view of how technology helps or hurts that entire restaurant operation. How does it hurt? Well, I think the, the biggest challenge, uh, we have a, a challenge today for us would be labor scheduling, uh, scheduling of people. So if my forecasting algorithms are inexact or I don't train my general manager on how to be better, when that peak hour hits, we, are, we, we have peak hours that used to be a peak hour, and now it's a peak three hours. Mm. But as those peaks are coming up, if my labor, if my forecasting, my sales forecasting engines by channel aren't accurate, then guess what? It means I don't have enough people on or I have way too many people on. The bigger risk is not enough. And then all of a sudden, I've got too many deliveries, you're getting substandard delivery, and you're mad, 
and you're calling the store or you're calling my customer support team, my general managers are bonused on customer sat, and guess what? The whole system breaks if you don't have that good fundamental technology in the back of the house. Huh. So is it about having the right technology in the back house? Is it partly about knowing when to overrule the technology and, and say, yeah, it's well, both. the algorithm might say this, but it's I both. know from experience. Yeah. It's both. And then if people tend to overrule it a lot, then they become less efficient, right? They mm -hmm. distrust the technology. They do it themselves. Well, I know on average we're close to being right. We're closer than the average manager is going to be because of the, the, the systems are constantly learning. But that is, a, it's, a, it's a tough problem. And at our volumes, at our level of complexity, we must have technology hmm. to actually help solve it. Now the transition from being a technical leader to a CEO, that, it, it's a way different role. It's right? a way different role. Because you, you, you were talking about when Ron Shake sent you out to say, let's solve this technology program. You kind of get your strike team together. Don't have to consult with everybody because you're, you're trying to build things and make things happen in the beginning. Uh, what were some things that you did during that period that you maybe wouldn't or can't do now? You know, it's, uh, it's an amazing challenge to go from or that I found to be real challenging. As an individual contributor or a small team manager, I just made the, I had to just make the decision. I actually believe that, a little bit quick aside, if, if you are not willing to be fired, you should not take on a transformation role mm. because you have got to have the courage to be wrong. And I find one of the biggest challenges of technologists is they are either strictly look at it from a technology perspective or they're afraid to push, to break through, particularly in large companies. So, so I find that as you become this, as I went from though managing this smaller piece, so I went from managing myself for the first two years mm -hmm. with a, a team on loan, to now between, on the company side, we have about 65,000 associates, and the total system that we impact every day is to 125, 130,000 people between us and our franchisees. Yeah. The, uh, I simply can't do this and say, make a change, right? It's not that easy. It's literally about picking what's important per, and looking at where the strategic bets are that enable a future. So in the past, I would say, I need to do this, now I'm saying I need to do these, we need to do these 10 things, we collectively, and then how do I create as a leader the inspiration to strive for achieving all of those 10 things? My role's gone from doing the work to helping people believe in the work that we're doing, that the work we're doing is important. It's a complete, I mean, it's a, it is a completely different job. Ah. Now, that's got to be tough for someone who's used to not only getting things done, but perhaps might be wired for applause because you've got to become wired for applause to come to maybe your direct reports or other people to feel totally empowered. Great. Well, I, uh, we joke about it. Probably shouldn't share it on air. But the early days we called me, Blaine, I had what I called Blaine 1.0. And let's just say Blaine 1.0 could be very direct. <laughs> not only candid, but very direct and very, put because... I believe you always push for a mission. I think without the mission, without an understanding of what you're trying to do, you just show up for work, you're wasting everybody's time. But push for a mission. Well, I could be a little direct. 
And we had Blaine 2.0, which is a little calmer, a little more chilled. And I'm working on Blaine 3.0 because I think it's critical for a role as I've stepped into this role. It's critical for me, particularly with this many people, with this many constituents. And it's much more, it's, it used to be, you know, we were working on, you know, Ron's dream or my dream or whatever. And I'm actually changing to where I'm saying your dream is my dream. How do I actually begin to change my philosophy about this being just about the broader Panera? And yet for those folks who report to me and who report to them and report to them, how do we make sure that you as an individual are achieving your mission in the broader context of us achieving ours? That's hard. Honestly, that's hard. But in today's society, and particularly with what people are looking for in, in their work, it's got to be about more than just, just getting the job done. What's different about what people are looking for? I think people are... We used to be satisfied with titles, with um, salaries. I don't think we're as satisfied with that anymore. Yeah, it's a way to count coup, but it's not as satisfying mm -hmm. as it is to say what I am working on has purpose and has meaning. And I think that can be defined within the context of a company or our broader society. Now, is that because we're spending so much more time either at work or thinking about work that, hey, if it was just about the title and the money, um, then, then I'd, I'd clock out at this time. But if, right. if I got to spend all this extra time, it's got to mean something. I think that's a big part of it. I, I, I think it's probably less tit for tat, if you will. I don't think it's exactly that. Because I think we have become, as we become to become a little more self-realized and say what's we are not as mo easily motivated. I'm not, even as, you know, I'm an, I'm an older guy, right? I've been around for a long time. But I don't get up in the morning saying, well, you know, I get a good, a good paycheck. I, I'm really working for more money in my paycheck. That's not what I get up doing. Mm. And I don't think most people do. And, and when I was first began my career, that was what we did. Right. Uh, I, I just think it is a general mindset shift that... As a human, I want to have a bigger role or a more important role. I want to make a bigger contribution and feel like I'm a part of something special and not just do the work. Okay, so let's talk about the future and, and what's next. We've had um, an era of I can call for delivery and then you know dial up. Uh, I can order delivery. Papa John's being the first yep. to do that in 1998. Yeah. Now we're on smartphone delivery and in-store ordering. Where does this go? What's the next level of convenience, either driven by a, a new tech, type of technology or, I don't know, what? Well, I, I think ordering, the, let's separate it into two different, a couple different processes. Number one, I think ordering moves increasingly towards voice. Everything we're seeing is moving us towards voice. As the systems get better and they, they more readily interpret what you say, uh, you know, I'm at a point my entire house is a smart house these days, and I just speak to my house, right, through mm -hmm. one of these devices. If you'd have told me that was happening five years ago, I'd have laughed. And that was just five years ago. Right. So I think that clearly as we look at the future of ordering from the device, from the in-car connected device, from, I mean, the voice is a bigger part. Talking to the devices is increasingly a part of the future. I think the in-store experience, that's interesting. How creepy are we willing to get, right? <laughs> because clearly using beacon technology, things like that, you can walk in and we, can, we know who you are. If that device is on, you have location services on. 
Uh, and we could actually, if, even if you didn't want to order, you walk up to a cashier, the cashier says, good morning, Mr. Port, would you like your usual? Mm -hmm. We could do that today. Our technology stack and our cafes, our point of sale could do that today. But you're not doing it. We're not doing it. I'm because worried about the creepy because factor. Because it might be creepy. I worry about the creepy factor. Yeah. But then again, you know, five years ago, if you just said I'd have picked up the, I was going to pick up, a, use my computer to, to or that I was going to talk to a stranger and then get in the car with a stranger later. Yeah. I, I'd have said no way, but of course yeah. that's how I got here this morning, <laughs> doing exactly that. So, Lift, so what was, what yeah. yeah, what was, what was creepy even a few years ago is not creepy today. So I think that's going to be a big part of it. But I think the next step is how do we use all of this technology to adapt the experience to you without being creepy? Whether for us, it's menu curation. We, get, we learn a little bit about what you really like. We can customize any menu, just about any item on our menu. What if you were vegetarian and, and you either told me or I picked up on it and I curated specific menu items for your taste that aren't on our standard menu? Hmm. We, that technology is coming. Um, is that artificial intelligence driven, or does that is that just regular computer intelligence? Well, you know, it, artificial intelligence. When I was in college, we were talking about it, and it had this narrow definition. Mm -hmm. As I read about what AI is today, it feels like it's this broad. It's the current <laughs> label, de, de rigor, if you will, that people use all the time. I, it, it is clearly a learning system. And I think that makes it more artificial intelligence-like because we learn your behaviors, your patterns, and then begin to offer and tune the, the offerings to you based on those patterns. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned voice being an important next step, and that makes me wonder, does that work because so many people just tend to reorder their usual? Um, because, I mean, I can barely string a sentence together on the fly when I know what I want to talk about. But if I'm looking at a menu and it's like, well, what do right. you want? Ah, maybe I want this, maybe I want that. I, I think I could confuse Alexa or Siri or Google or whomever. Yeah, I think the, um, clearly the easiest one is the reorder. That's fairly straightforward. I do believe uh, we have, we've been working, one of the, the companies we've worked with, uh, we worked with all of them, but Google, some of their new technology, it's a combination of voice plus the device. And so it's voice prompted, mm. and then the, the prompt actually then asks you for further information. I want a, a chicken chipotle avocado sandwich. Well, would you like to modify it in any way? Yeah, you know, tell me what's on it. Uh, uh, you say, well, please leave off the avos. Okay, uh, we'll leave off the avocado. Is there any other changes you'd like to make to the sandwich? That technology exists today, but it's a combination of the device and, and reading on the device as well as voice, because sometimes it's easier to see it when you're trying to respond to it. That's probably, if you're getting into complicated ordering, that will be some type of integration of the two, but just make it dead easy to use. Mm -hmm. I think the future state may be true artificial intelligence where you wouldn't be doing that, but I agree with you. There's only so many things I can remember, and everybody wants me, until I get closer to human language, it's going to be hard to have a conversation with my computer. Siri's not, not having a conversation with me. Yes, indeed. Um, finally, when it comes to the worker of the future that Panera's going to need, 10 years from now, let's say, what are the 
skills, um, the, the, the mindset that the mainstream Panera worker is going to need, and whether that's in-store or at corporate? Well, I think in-store, honestly, I don't believe it'll change that much because mm. it's got to be one of service. The, in the restaurant business and, and most of the service industry, the confusion, it's not about the technology. It's some of our best stores uh, and our, the ones we get the most positive feedback from customers are the cafes where those associates care for you, John Fort, more than they care for everything else, hmm. right? So that people side of our business, the care that we put into our food, the cleanliness of our restaurants, the maintenance of our restaurants, being what I call it, being a restaurateur, mm -hmm. the more, you know, the big, you think about a restaurateur, you know what I mean when I'm talking about the big words of being a big time restaurateur. Attention that means to detail. Attention to detail, hiring yeah. great people, all that stuff. That people who it, love people and it's just exactly. a place you want to go. And, That's right. not going to change. Huh. Because I don't think all this technology replaces humans. It just, it just doesn't. Now, we may... But is that human contact still high value? Is it higher value because of all the digital stuff in our lives? What do you think? I actually think it's higher value. And particularly for people who choose to come to our restaurant, if we're delivering to you, you want great, a great person at the door, someone you trust, someone you think is kind of cool or funny or whatever. If you are taking the time to come to one of our restaurants then the, and those people there are rude to you, in this world of convenience, you're kind of going out of your way because you like the food or whatever. Guess what? You're not coming back yeah. uh, because your life is too digital. And I do think the human side of this will, in, these, in our restaurants, will not change. I don't see that really changing. What I, on the corporate side, we are becoming, as everybody is, increasingly digital. And an understanding of how do we integrate everything from digital marketing to the technology itself, to our design voice. I, you know, I've set up a design center in the Boston area where we're bringing in designers of all the different dimension, from all the different dimensions of design, whether it's cafe design, marketing design, digital design, et cetera, and co-locating them physically together mm. so that they can work on, on the same project, just div providing different viewpoints. Um, all of that becomes much more integrated around this holistic guest experience with digital in the center of all of that. And I think that's what we still have to learn much more about. Well, then there's hope for the human worker after all. Oh, without question. <laughs> I don't see in the 10-year in the time frame anyway, I don't see robots in the back pumping out the salads for you and then scooting them across the table. That's probably not going to happen in 10 years. 20 years, I have no, no clue. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> all right, Blaine Hurst, CEO of Panera. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. My thanks to Richard Freed, Anya Kamenetz, Catherine Omarad, and of course, Blaine Hurst. I am John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the newsletter. I read them all. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T knox.com slash YouTube. As a matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of many of these conversations, or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured areas. 
Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note again on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.